Thank you, uh, Glenn Dennis, again, for uh, Cardiovascular Systems, Inc. Uh, the district court's order uh, regarding, in the Petrucci case, uh, dismissing all of the claims of CSI was uh, uh, incorrect and should be reversed on essentially two separate grounds. Uh, one is that the breach of contract action based on Section 10 and the related uh, tortious interference with contract for Section 10 claim should not have been dismissed for statute of limitations uh, or for not being within the, the statute of limitations. And separately, the tortious interference based on Section 3 of the contract uh, was, in fact, both actionable and properly alleged. Uh, with respect to the Section 10 breach claim, uh, the, the, a cause accrues only once all of the elements of that claim can be pleaded uh, in order to withstand the motion to dismiss. That's uh, Minnesota as well as Eighth Circuit uh, black letter law. This requires an analysis of the elements of the claim. Under Minnesota law, uh, damages is an element of a contract claim. And in fact, the district court acknowledged that in its order. Uh, this court's uh, Reuter versus Jack's case acknowledges that, and the Minnesota case of Jensen acknowledges that. What, what about Levin versus Cone? Doesn't that go the other way? Uh, I, I, could you, Your Honor, say the case again? Oh, uh, Levin versus Cone, Minnesota, 1989. Um, I, I, I'll try and re, uh, deal with that in the rebuttal. I, I'll, I'll just ask more generally. Sure. Uh, aren't there cases uh, in Minnesota saying that damages are, are not an element of breach of contract? Uh, there have been those cases, Your Honor, and I believe that the, the Supreme Court in Park Nicolay uh, in footnote 5 uh, acknowledges that there is, in fact, some, especially in much older cases, uh, some question about whether damages is, a, is, in fact, an element or not. Um, the district court here acknowledged that it was, and uh, in this court's um, only decisions that I've been able to find on that issue, such as Reuter from 2013, uh, it does acknowledge that damages is, in fact, an element. Uh, if the court were to find that, it, it, that it's not, I think that might be an issue that should be certified to the Minnesota Supreme Court, but, but, but certainly um, based yeah, on... I didn't see the footnote as actually answering the question. Just an acknowledgement is that they have a bunch of old cases that say nominal damages are sufficient. Um, and they're all out there, and, you know, uh, I'm not familiar with uh, with how Minnesota interprets its own statutes. If they say that, you know, that without overruling it, just recognizing the existence of the problem, that that's sufficient for a court to go down that path or not, right? Um, and, and that was kind of my point, was when we're talking about are there damages or they're not damages, nominal damages may be enough. It seems to me that that there's a, there's a rather large body of law out there, although albeit old, that says that that's sufficient. And, and you know, that's kind of the historic contract world, you know. Um, wasn't until lit litigation got terribly expensive that we started caring about damages the way we do now. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it just is hard for me. I mean, would have been much, much better if the Supreme Court and Park uh, versus Nicolette would have just kind of like actually said, now nah, we don't believe that's true any longer. <laughs> He's looking at me because I sat on that case. Um, but I'm just but, picking on <laughs> But, you know, it, it is an interesting point because um, – I think that most of it suggests that regardless of the damages itself, most of Park Nicollet suggests regardless of the existence of damages itself, um, that the claim accrues once you know about the breach. That seems to be the underlying rule of the Park Nicollet case. Once you know about the breach, whether you have damages or not, you need to file your cause of action. And that maybe you disagree with that, but that seems to, to be pretty fatal to your claim. 
Well, you know, Your Honor, it's certainly true that there is this enduring nugget of uh, what we would say is dicta from uh, the uh, Beschertz case, uh, and that, I think that's where it sort of started about almost a century ago, that says that, you know, knowledge of the breach, even if damages happen later, is when the claim accrues. It's very hard to square that with sort of the concept of accrual of a claim, and we would either, I think that there would have to either be an acknowledgement that damages is not an element of the claim or that claims can accrue before you can plead all of the elements of a claim uh, in order to sort of be able to square all of these different rules. Um, the way that I would suggest we square it is to say that in Beshertz and Park Nicolette, both of those cases involved damages that were immediate. Uh, and I believe that the court, in fact, said that. So your, I believe your honors can say, you know, we're going we're to reverse here without having to necessarily get into the tinkering too much of Minnesota law. Um, I, I would also say, just to your, your honors' point about uh, nominal damages in a contract claim, uh, my, the other side was making the argument, I think, that's almost very similar, which is that a claim should accrue under the damages rule, if we're going to apply the damages rule, uh, sort of immediately be- because there's uh, potentially, uh, you know, some sort of nominal damages. Uh, I would argue that that is not the way to apply the damages rule. Uh, this, the Minnesota Supreme Court in Antone and Security Bank and Trust case uh, discussed the best way or the, the proper way, really, to apply that rule, and it's that it has to be, first of all, in some way different than the occurrence rule. Um, otherwise, it's really just collapsing them into one rule. The whole idea of the damages rule is that it's different than and somewhat more lenient than the occurrence rule and somewhat less lenient than the, than the notice rule. Uh, under those two cases, a claim can accrue uh, only when there is some compensable damage. Uh, in this case, we, w- we would say that there was not any compensable damage until at the earliest we knew that CardioFlow was not going to be bound or did not consider themselves to be bound by the settlement agreement. Uh, unlike Antone, where there was an immediate loss of a right, that the, the husband who had bargained for the antinuptial agreement there literally uh, had lost his protection of community property or, or uh, marital property in that state the minute he entered a, a marriage without a proper sort of modification of the default rule. Uh, in our case, there was no such immediate, immediate right lost. Uh, once the assignment agreement was was finished, it was not until uh, either 2016 when they started uh, breaching the the non uh, or the exclusive right or when they actually said we are not going to be bound by that, we don't consider ourselves to be bound by it, that there was any sort of compensable, uh, compensable harm. Even if the court were to say in a contract action uh, that it happens or that there's an accrual before all of the elements can necessarily be made if damages is one of them, and it happens at the breach. However, that's certainly not the rule in a tortious interference claim. Uh, tort, uh, tort claims like tortious interference with contract are, in fact, not contract claims. Um, the New York's highest court in Kronos discusses the differences between sort of tort and contract actions and the fact that they're in a tort action. It's all about the harm. 
uh, it's harm-focused, not promise-focused. What do you do And I didn't sit on this case. It was the year after I was born. <laughs> Wild versus Rarig, um, which is a 1975 case, which deals with uh, – which deals with defamation. It says you look really kind of look at how the claim accruals in the defamation sense, even though it was a tortious interference claim. Wouldn't you do the same thing here and kind of figure out what the underlying part of the claim is and figure out it's a contract claim so you apply the same rule you have from Park Nicollet? Well, you know, I think that Wild might say and, and – you know that the that the length of the statute of limitations would certainly be borrowed from the underlying uh, claim, but it can't be that the accrual is borrowed from that. Uh, that's not what the holding was, and I think that there uh, there were some very special sort of strange facts dealing with defamation and the tort of defamation. It found that there was literally no difference between the uh, the the tortious interference claim and the defamation itself. If there's to be and there must be some difference, there. Are, different elements to a tortious interference with contract claim and a, and a contract claim to have any sort of separation. There has to be uh, a different accrual rule, and it would have to be that there's no accrual until there's some damages. Uh, and there's, you know, our, here we're just looking at allegations. Our allegations were quite clear that there were no damages until the earliest being 2016. Uh, la- lastly, uh, because I, I want to make sure I reserve uh, three minutes for rebuttal, in our tortious interference with Section 3 uh, argu- uh, claim, the district court had uh, dismissed it because it found that we hadn't put uh, CardioFlow on notice of our patent infringement contentions. Uh, we explain that mainly due to CardioFlow's counsel and the way that uh, they chose to argue the hearing on these motions, they injected these issues about uh, patent infringement and having to do with the uh, sort of the technical aspects of this uh, of this uh, invention into that hearing. They can't be heard at this point uh, to say that there's no uh, that you haven't put us on notice for purposes of Rule Eight as to what your infringement contentions would be. Uh, the sort of the final point is that the district court uh, also erred uh, because it found that. Uh, that there was no, uh, and this was uh, a point made by the district court in its denial of our motion to amend the complaint, uh, sort of at the very end of that order, the district court said, and by the way, there was no duty or there were no sort of contractual obligations under Section 3 uh, upon which a tortious interference claim could be based because Ms. Nadirishvili was not, uh, didn't have any sort of continuing obligations to prevent other people from in, from breaching the agreement. Uh, our, our position here, and we, we cited a case about this, is that uh, the whole purpose of an ex- exclusive license is that there is a promise uh, to to be giving something of value, that essentially we're giving you these, uh, these intellectual property rights that we're not giving to other people. At a minimum, uh, that would mean that the assignment agreement here that uh, falsely purports not to have encumbered these patents and falsely purports to say that these are going to be assigned free and clear of any kinds of, uh, of licenses, that would certainly be something that falls outside of the contractual duties, whatever they may be. So if the court were to uh, want to rule quite narrowly on that without even getting into sort of the, you know, the doctrine about what an exclusive license may mean, it certainly must mean that the person can double, uh, double license the patents, and that's precisely what Ms. Nadirishvili did here. Uh, Lest your honors have any other questions, I'll reserve my remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you.
You may, Mr. Hall. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> Dan Hall again on behalf this time of Gary Petrucci and Leela Nadirishvili. There are two contract provisions at issue on this appeal. Section 10, which CSI claims was both breached and tortiously interfered with, and Section 3A, which CSI is now saying only that it was tortiously interfered with. The claims concerning Section 10 are barred by the six-year statute of limitations applicable to breach of contract claims. Um, if the court reaches beyond the statute of limitations issues, the claim for breach of Section 10, uh, the dismissal can be affirmed on the alternative basis that there was no obligation under the language of Section 10 for Leela Nadirshvili to assign the settlement agreement to CardioFlow. With respect to Section 3A, the district court properly dismissed CSI's claim because the district court found that properly construed, and there's no dispute about the construction, CSI needed to plead a plausible claim for patent infringement under Section 3A, and that there simply are no allegations like that in CSI's complaint. In addition, as, uh, as counsel for CSI noted toward the end of his presentation, when CSI moved to amend late in the case, the district court found alternatively that Leela Nadirishvili didn't breach Section 3A of the settlement agreement because there was no obligation on her part to hunt down any potential third-party infringers and stop them from practicing any exclusively licensed claims that CSI might claim to have a right to under the settlement agreement. And that last issue is a matter typically addressed in the context of standing to sue uh, for patent infringement. A naked licensee, someone who just receives a license to make or use an invention, uh, does not typically have standing to bring a claim for patent infringement. But an exclusive licensee, who has been assigned all bundle of rights under, under a claim, does. And the independent wireless case, the Supreme Court decision, talks about how the parties can allocate responsibility to go after infringers, but if they don't do that, then the licensor has to allow the exclusive licensee to join in an action for patent infringement. But that also stands for the proposition that without saying anything more, you are not obligated as a licensor to go track down any potential third-party infringer. If CSI and Nadarshvili had wanted to make that kind of agreement, they could have done so. They didn't do it here. So the idea would be that CSI has to go after CardioFlow on a breach of the exclusive license. He can't go over, go after Nadarishvili or Petrucci. If they have a patent infringement theory to assert, then they would have to bring it against whomever the potential uh, infringer is. Um, in this case, CSI can't go after CardioFlow for patent infringement because CardioFlow is still going through FDA clinical trials, and so there's this safe harbor that exists there, which is part of the reason why we have a breach of contract claim instead of a patent infringement case. With respect to the statute of limitations issue, on Section 10, the breach by Nadarishvili claim is squarely resolved by Minnesota case law for at least 85 years, dating back to the Bockert's decision. Uh, Minnesota has consistently recognized that for claims of breach of contract, the claim accrues upon breach, not at some later time when damages uh, may take place. Um, 
There's a recent Minnesota Supreme Court decision in the Vermilion State Bank versus Tennis Sanitation case. It's 969 Northwest 2nd 610, in which the Minnesota Supreme Court once again said, breach of contract actions not governed by the UCC must be brought within six years of the breach. And so the Minnesota Supreme Court and courts in Minnesota have consistently recognized that at least for breach of contract claims, the claim accrues when the contract is breached and the six-year limitation period begins then. In terms of the tortious interference with contract under Section 610, the parties agree that the same statute of limitations applies. The same six-year period that applies for a breach of contract claim applies to a tortious interference claim. And the key case on this is the Minnesota Supreme Court's Wild versus Rarig decision. In that case, the Minnesota Supreme Court dealt with a theory of tortious interference that arose under de defamation and the court asked the question, when does a claim for defamation accrue? On the Wild case, the Minnesota Supreme Court didn't ultimately need to answer that question. They remanded the, to the district court to decide the issue and laid out some ground rules that other courts had applied for defamation claims. Here, Also, didn't the court expressly limit the holding in Wild to its facts, and don't we have to respect that? I don't think that the holding in Wild was limited to its facts. I know that there have been some subsequent cases that have said that Wild was limited, limited to its facts, but I think that they're focusing on language in that decision that says, on the facts here, and then discussing it. I don't think that there was an express limitation of, uh, we don't want this to apply to other cases in the future. If those other cases were Minnesota cases, don't we still have to respect those? Well, the, the court does need to defer to, to Minnesota cases here, but I think that other cases applying Minnesota law, including the Wallen decision, uh, cite to Wild for the proposition of this divide of if you're governed, whatever underlying statute of limitations uh, governs whatever you're tortiously interfering with, governs the claim for tortious interference. And it makes sense. There's a difference between tortious interference and breach of contract, but the difference is not in what is at issue. The difference is in who it is that is being held responsible. You can't tortiously interfere with your own contract. It's always someone who's not a party. In this case, the allegation is being asserted against Gary Petrucci, but there's no meaningful reason why a claim should be able to be asserted against Mr. Petrucci long, long after CSI uh, long, long after the alleged breach from not immediately uh, assigning this to CardioFlow allegedly occurred. Under the sum damage rule that CSI would like to apply here, the result is the same. Uh, because sum damage, and this is referring to the Antone versus Marvis case, the uh, Security Bank and Trust versus Larkin Hoffman case, sum damage occurs when there is the loss of some right. And here, what CSI says is, we had some right on the settlement agreement. We lost that right when Leela Nadirishvili assigned it to CardioFlow without requiring her to be, sub without requiring CardioFlow to be subject to that settlement agreement. And like the Antone decision, that alleged loss occurred at the moment of assignment. Once you crossed that moment of assignment, similar to once the plaintiff and Antone got married, the protection was lost. And that is sufficient even under the sum damage rule for the right to accrue. 
The security banking and trust case, which CSI cites to, is a very difficult circumstance because in that case, the actual right lost it involved the right to try to avoid a generation-skipping transfer tax. And up to the moment that someone actually passes away, they can modify their will. So in the, uh, in the case for Security Bank and Trust, the moment at which the right was lost coincided with the moment where the grantor of the will, passed, will and trust, passed away. And unfortunately for the successor, the right needed to accrue while he was alive in order for the trustee there to be able to stand in as a matter of standing. Um, the other way that this court can deal with Section 10 is by just applying the plain language of Section 10. Section 10 permits in the circumstance that if, if Leela Nadirishvili assigned all of her patent rights, she had the opportunity to, but was not required to assign the patents. So section seven of the settlement gave her the right to assign any patents that she wanted to. And section 10 provided that, generally speaking, the settlement agreement itself was not assignable, but in one circumstance, assignment of all of the patent rights, she may assign it. And the parties were very careful in settlement agreement to use may permissively and to use shall or must to denote a mandatory obligation. Sometimes I, I think that's being read in isolation rather than in context. And I'm wondering, doesn't it have to be read together with what's prohibited, what, what's allowed, and look in the context of what's prohibited? I, I, I would agree. And Section 10, the top part of it says you, the parties may not assign the settlement agreement without the express written consent of the other party. But in this one narrow context, they may. And that's a different provision than Section 7. Section 7 is a standalone provision of the same contract, and reading the entire agreement in context gave Leela Nadirishvili the right to assign patents. What CSI is trying to do is say, take Section 7, which gives her the right to assign patents, take this other provision and craft it on and limit that right to assign patents based on the language of this other provision. But if you look at that provision, it uses permissive language. It does not impose that mandatory obligation. The last issue is CSI's claim for tortious interference with Section 3A of the Settlement Agreement. And the district court found that CSI had not pleaded a claim for patent infringement. So properly construed, Section 3A grants to CSI an exclusive right and license under the Nadarishvili patent portfolio if certain patents issue that claim solid counterweights but not other technology under the portfolio. In order to make out a plausible claim for patent infringement, at a minimum, CSI needed to identify which patents and which patent claims it was alleging that CardioFlow's device practiced. It didn't do that, so it, was, it did not plead a claim for patent infringement. What CSI wants to do is take claim charts disclosed in a different lawsuit in July of 2020 and add them in to its April 29, 2020 complaint. Essentially say, you must have known because these other claim charts that were produced in opposition to summary judgment 
should be read into this complaint. The problem for CSI is that that matters beyond the four corners of the complaint. And ordinarily speaking, courts are instructed not to consider matters outside of the complaint when ruling on a motion to dismiss. Courts have some discretion in deciding whether or not to consider matters outside the, the pleadings if they are embraced by the pleadings. That's reviewed for an abuse of discretion standard, not the typical de novo standard that applies to just deciding on, a, on the motion to dismiss based on what's actually set forth there. So in order to prevail in that claim, CSI needs to show that the district court abused its discretion by not incorporating in these claim charts from another case, which CSI did not ask the district court to incorporate in. They simply cannot prevail on that theory under this court's um, precedent. Um, if the court does ultimately reach the issue of taking a look at those, uh, those claim charts, it's important to note, and we, we've cited in this, this in our briefing, that there was additional discussion with the court about those claim charts after, um, after the hearing on this motion to dismiss. Uh, the same letter was filed by CSI in both this proceeding, the petrucci Nadarishvili proceeding, and in the other CardioFlow proceeding. And in that letter, CSI acknowledged that the limitations in the claim charts that we're now talking about are not present in the CardioFlow device. There is no fluid impermeable membrane layer of material. So if they had considered the claim charts, the uh, CSI also acknowledges that there is no literal infringement of those claims, and they still would not be able to uh, pursue a breach of that um, breach of that contract by patent infringement. Um, I have some additional time if you have some questions, Your Honor. Seeing none, thank you, Mr. Hall. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Dennis. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to address a couple of points from uh, opposing counsel and then uh, close uh, very briefly. Uh, first, U.S. valves is directly on point for why this type of uh, breach of contract action as opposed to a patent infringement action is, is in fact actionable. U.S. valves is, is, was relied on by the district court. And again, the, the district court said, but for a lack of privity here, uh, you know, we would be in U.S. valves land where the exclusive license can be enforced via a contract action. Uh, I would, num number two, I'd like to remind the court that uh, for an accrual of any tort claim, uh, there is a requirement for damages, and specifically for a tortious interference with contract claim uh, under the Sizedine case, 860 Northwest 2nd, 347, uh, Minnesota, uh, 2015 that was cited in our papers. Damages is a required element, uh, and that's something that there's not any uh, dispute about for a tortious interference claim. 
Uh, Section 10's meaning is something that we've gone around and around on. Uh, and I just want to clarify that, uh, you know, this, this sort of discussion about Section 7 and what Section 7 means in relation to Section 10, uh, CSI was not arguing that the identity of Mr. Petrucci was why there is a breach of the exclusive license here or the, the, the breach of Section 3. Uh, so Section 7 is not at issue here. The issue is that for Mr. Petrucci or any assignee of the, the rights that are created by the settlement agreement, there's a concomitant obligation under Section 10 uh, that that uh, assignee agreed to be bound by the same exclusive license that CSI bargained for and obtained. Uh, and finally, on this fluid and permeable membrane issue, um, there was not a concession, and in the very same letter that CardioFlow cites, uh, CSI said that under the doctrine of equivalence, uh, whether it has a fluid impermeable membrane or a, an equivalent thereof, uh, there is infringement under under that well-known uh, doctrine of, of patent law. Counsel, under under uh, paragraph ten, um, opposing counsel makes the argument that he uses the permissive word "may." And it does indeed use the per permissive word may. Um, what do we do with the argument that this is really an assignment of the patents, not an assignment of the settlement agreement? Uh, well, our, our, our position is that reading the contract as a whole, uh, the assignment of the settlement agreement and the rights and obligations created by the settlement agreement includes the patents. The patents are what were assigned here, and this, this fiction that there's you can assign the, the settlement agreement or the patents, but you, you, you know one may but need not do so, uh, that, that doesn't apply here. It says that in, the, in Section 10, if you do decide to assign the rights created by this agreement, you must make sure that the assignee uh, agrees to be bound. So the patents and the settlement agreement itself go together? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I, would, I would just like to say that in this case, CSI is, in fact, the good faith party here. Uh, CSI settled hotly contested litigation and agreed to abide by a split of patents in the settlement agreement after many years of litigation and arbitration. And before the ink was even dry on that, Mr. Petrucci and CardioFlow and Ms. Nadirashvili were working to figure out an end run to make that settlement agreement worthless. Uh, so I think that that overarching principle is something that Your Honor should keep in mind when looking at these issues. Thank you.